Have you ever had a miserable day? I mean, just miserable. Maybe it wasn't even a day. Maybe, maybe it was a whole week. Maybe it was a whole month. Maybe you just had misery that would never go away. You could never get your misery off your mind no matter what you tried and no matter where you went. You know, there's an old phrase, and the old phrase says what? Misery loves company. Man, that's good. Misery loves company. What in the world does that mean? Well, the American Heritage New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy gives us this definition for the phrase. People who are unhappy may get some consolation from knowing that others are unhappy too. There you go. That's nice. Well, I'm miserable. I want you to be miserable too. If that definition was a little too wordy, we'll refine it a little more by quoting Calvin and Hobbes' comic strip. Calvin one day said this, nothing helps a bad mood like spreading it around. It's true, right? To spread that bad mood around. So misery seems to love company. Misery also seems to love something else, though. Kevin Pollack, uh, actor and comedian, uh, created and directed a movie, uh, kind of a documentary, and the title of the film is Misery Loves Comedy. Misery Loves Comedy, and it's all about how misery is a huge part of comedic material. This is what he said in an interview this week about what comedians do. A songwriter would take misery and make it into something moving. We take misery and make it funny. By doing that, we can survive misery. We can live with it, perhaps even laugh at it. You know, sometimes when we're in the middle of that miserable moment, it is really good to have a family member or a friend or a nurse or a complete stranger that just helps us laugh. Somebody who just helps us for a moment to escape our misery. But there is a kind of misery that is no laughing matter. There's a, a kind of, of misery that is much deeper than just the normal miserable moments of life. It's the kind of misery that is much more important and much worse than just a percentage point on your GPA. It's much more important than losing that point or losing a bonus or at work or, or losing the big game or losing your health, or, or losing your mobility, or, or losing money in the stock market. This type of misery is strategically connected to losing your soul. And company will not help this kind of misery, and comedy will not help this kind of misery. There's only one cure for this particular kind of misery, and that cure is compassion. Compassion. Where does this compassion come from? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us. By its very nature, misery is painful. Misery brings pain to our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Sometimes one or two of those things. Sometimes all three of those things. Misery impacts every part of who we are. But the misery of the soul is completely different. The misery of being separated forever from God has a completely different kind of pain. In fact, there is no pain that compares to that pain. It's the deepest pain. 
Archibald Alexander was appointed to be the first professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in August of 1812. He went on to spend 27 years teaching at Princeton. He was writing once about the misery that a person who's not a Christian experiences. And this is what he said. Even in this world, much misery is endured. But in the world to come, hope is a stranger. And there are no alleviating circumstances. The headache, toothache, and rheumatism are all severe pains, but they are not the same. And these bodily pains differ exceedingly from the feelings of remorse or despair. What kind of despair, what kind of misery is he talking about here? Well, the despair of living eternally in a world where there will never be love and joy. Where love and joy will never exist. What would that be like? What would, what would it be like to, to experience that depth of misery? Maybe put another way. What would it be like to not be a Christian? What would that first moment after death be like? Alexander decided to attempt thinking through that from a firsthand account. He wrote, I am lost forever. All hope of happiness or relief is gone from my miserable soul. The blackness of darkness is round about me. No ray of light dawns on my wretched soul. Despair, terrible despair, has now seized upon me and must blacken every prospect to all eternity. While in the world I could contrive to turn away my thoughts from the disagreeable subject, but now... Now my misery, like a heavy burden, presses on me and is ever-present. While in the body and engaged in secular pursuits, I entertained a secret hope that there might be some mistake respecting the extreme misery of the damned, or that there might possibly be some way of escape not revealed. But now, all these idle notions have fled like a dream when one awakes. I find Hell to be no fable, but a dreadful reality. I find that the preachers, so far from exaggerating the misery of the lost, had no adequate conception of the wretchedness of a soul cast off from God forever and doomed to dwell in everlasting burnings. Oh, horrible, horrible, I am then undone, forever undone. In all former distresses, I could cry for mercy. But now, now I have passed beyond the reach of mercy. Beyond the reach of mercy is true misery. There is no greater misery than that. Now you may be thinking, God, come on, Dow. I came for good news today. I'd come to hear all this, this dark, burning stuff about hell. You might even be thinking, look, I don't even know if I believe in hell, so why are you talking about hell? Well, Jesus, on numerous occasions, pointed out the reality of hell, pointed out the reality that some would go away into eternal punishment and some would go away into eternal life. And so it would be completely foolish for us as Christians just to dismiss the conversations about hell. But we kind of know that as Christians. But what if you're not a Christian? 
Why in the world should you care about hell? Well, think of it this way. If, as some say, there is no hell and there's only heaven, there will be some really angry and upset atheist one day. If everybody goes to heaven, then, then there's some bad news in that, actually, for some. Because, see, you spend your whole life saying that you do not believe that God is the creator. You spend your whole life denying his existence, or at the very least denying his authority and his power. Only to die and find out that eternity is about being in a place that is obsessed with worshiping and glorifying and enjoying a God that you don't believe in. Pardon the phraseology, but for some, that would be hell in heaven. This notion of having to worship God forever. Listen, if you're not a Christian and you've had a bad experience with religion, or you've had a bad experience with a church, or, or you've had a, a bad experience with professing Christians, I am really, really sorry. I'm sorry you've had that experience. And, and if you are a professing Christian causing those experiences, distracting people from Jesus, then please stop distracting people from Jesus. And if you refuse to stop distracting people from Jesus, then at least stop professing to be a Christian. We, we are here to make much of Jesus. But if you are a Christian, then live for Christ. Make much of him. And if you are not a Christian, don't let the sin of others distract you from your own interaction with God. Or maybe put another way, don't underestimate or ignore your appointment with death. Don't let that pass away. If you're not a Christian, we are not here today to, to yell at you in an angry voice that you need to turn or burn. But we are pleading with you because of a genuine care for your soul and a genuine desire that you would have real joy in your life to consider these things are true. To consider that you actually do need God, that you actually can't save yourself, that you actually need to be rescued. We would plead with you to consider the pronouns. Look at the pronouns that Paul uses. He saved us. You see, if you are not a Christian, you cannot save yourself. Only God saves. And if you are a Christian, you did not save yourself. Only God saves. And he saves in such a way that it makes it clear that our arguing is not supposed to be about a rational or spiritual approach to whether hell exists or not. That's, that's not what this is about. Rather, this is just a, a gracious plea to leave misery and find hope. The kind of hope that is real, the kind of hope that is lasting, the kind of hope that is eternally guaranteed. Now, how in the world can we know that it's eternally guaranteed? Well, look at the, the pronouns. <laughs> he saved us. The pronouns point to this one true creator God, the most powerful ruler and authority ever, forever and ever and ever. Paul gives us a little more insight in this. Look at the next part of verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You see, my salvation, 
is in no way, shape, or form ultimately and finally dependent on me. And that's really, really, really good to know. Here's why. See, I can put together a a pretty mean spicy corn casserole. I'm serious. You'd like it. It would taste great. And I can put together a, a pretty tasty chocolate cinnamon pecan pie. Really, I've done this. It's turned out really good, too. You would enjoy it. So, so I can put together some food, and, and I can put together a sermon, and I can, I can plan something, but I cannot speak the world into existence. See, I'm not able to do that. So I cannot save me, and I cannot save you. I don't have that ability. I don't have that power. My good deeds, my righteous deeds, my seminary degree, my title as pastor, none of those things make me right with God, and they do not make you right with God. Maybe think of it this way. Do you know what your credit score is? God, I'm really being depressing now, all right? Oh, why'd you have to bring that in there? All right, some of you don't even know what a credit score is, and that's okay. Um, if, hopefully those who are not yet out on their own yet. So let me just define a credit score for you, at least one definition from Wikipedia. A credit score is a numerical expression based on a level analysis of a person's credit files to represent the credit worthiness of that person. That's just a cool word, credit worthiness. What it means is this. Can we trust you with a loan can we trust you to pay your bills? Do, do you have, have some measure of financial responsibility somewhere in your life? Listen, that's what they want to know before they hand you the keys to a new car. That's what they want to know before they hand you the keys to a new house. They want to know, are you credit worthy? So spiritually speaking, your spiritual credit score is zero. It's, it's, it's zero. So how in the world can you get a a credit score like zero changed? Well, here are some ways that will not automatically change your spiritual credit score. Things that won't automatically make it change and automatically bring it up. Praying a sinner's prayer. Being baptized. Joining a church. Putting money in the Salvation Army bucket at Christmas time. Those are good things. Those are great things. But by themselves, apart from the Spirit of God, they cannot save you in and of themselves. Isaiah, he put it this way. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. See, we live in a culture where even people in the church will ask things like this. How can a loving God send people to hell? Why, why are God's demands so impossible? Why does it seem like he's, he's so mean and demanding? What, what is the deal with God? Isaiah gives a, a completely different question. Isaiah says, God, how is it possible that you would ever be able to save anyone? How is this possible? Think of it this way. Is a bank going to loan a guy $987,000 to buy a house when his credit score is the same as the career home runs of Carlton Fisk, which would be 376. Random information you don't need to know, but, you know, impress your friends at lunch today. Yeah, in case you don't know much about credit scores, the bank would not do that, or at the very least they shouldn't do that. Isaiah is saying this. 
He says, if I take the best deed, the most righteous thing I could possibly give to God, and I say, here, it will have no impact on my credit score. I'll, I'll still be at zero. What kind of eternal leverage do you think you have when you step on the other side of death with a zero credit score? Now, you may be thinking, man, I, I just don't like this. And you're, you're making me sound, sound dirty and, and helpless. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, that's exactly what I'm doing. Listen, if you leave the hospital and the doctor gives you a roll of Tums and says, look, go take these, and in about a week you'll be feeling better, knowing that he looked at your scans and saw a terminal disease all over your stomach. Do you think you would like for him to do that? Just here, here's some Tums. You'll be fine in a week. No, but for some reason, we expect God to tell us, because we always buy mom a Mother's Day present, or because we put our kids through college, we, we expect God to say to us, you know what, there are no consequences for your sin. And you know what, everybody is going to get to go to heaven. See, here's the problem with that. that. That's a lie. And see, God, unlike every parent, unlike every pastor, unlike every prophet, unlike every parishioner, Unlike every politician, unlike every person, God cannot lie. He's faithful all the time. He always tells the truth. And so what's the truth? What's this truth that he's giving us here? This is how Paul said it to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. <laughs> Dead's kind of a pretty clear word, right? As I heard somebody say years ago, you know, dead people don't open Christmas presents. You know? there's, there's not a gift, they just open up. It, to be dead is, is to be dead. So a dead person here, and what Paul's describing, is spiritual deadness. It means we're dead in our sins. We, we have spiritual death. We are helpless. Our credit score is zero. This is the description of what it means to be without Jesus. Paul goes on a few sentences later in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So without Christ, there's, there's, there's no hope. There's not like a, a shrivel. There's not, not just a little. There's, there's no hope. To be separated from God, to be spiritually dead, that is helpless and hopeless. There's, there's no good news there. All right, so, so this truth sounds like really, really bad, depressing news, right? I mean, is there any good news in the middle of all this? No, there's really not. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no good news in all this. There's only great news. There's, there's only great news. It, it's not good. It's not average. It's not ho-hum. It is great. It is the best news in the universe. So what is this great news? Well, let me see if I can build us a little bridge between the bad news and the good news. A story is told of an old boy who stood up at a church meeting, and he was telling people how he became a Christian. And according to Dr. Harry Arnside, this is what he said when he was speaking. 
He talked about how God had sought him and found him, how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. And when the church meeting was over that night, somebody who was at the meeting came over to the man who shared his testimony, told his story, and this is what he said to the man. You know, I appreciate all that you said about what God did for you, but you did not mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God, and and you should have mentioned something about your part. The man looked at him and and smiled, and this is what he said back. Oh, I apologize. I'm sorry. I really should have mentioned that. My part was running away, and God's part was running after me until he found me. That is so good. See, we are dead. We are lost. We are far, far, far away from hope. And in that moment, hope comes to us. How? Look at the next part of verse 5. God does not save us according to our righteous deeds, but according to his mercy. His mercy. There there are two incredible truths in this little phrase. The first one is the fact that God gives according to instead of out of. So let me see if I can help us think through that. So imagine that I take my wife and my four kids to the Double K Ranch, and I get two dozen hot glazed donuts, all right? And then I get out to the car, and I take one of those donuts, just one of those donuts, and I cut that donut in five pieces. And then I take one of those five donut little pieces of sugar and I hand them off to each person in my family. Now, I'm not saying I've ever done this. I'm not saying I've ever even thought about it for more than a few seconds. But, But let's just suppose that I give my family this little shrivel of donut. What I'm doing is I'm giving out of what I have, not according to what I have. If I gave according, I'd I'd give all of them four donuts. I I would be really sharing what I have, sharing from what I have. Somebody put it not in terms of donuts, but in dollars. They said, imagine you're a billionaire and you give me 10 bucks. Well, you have given me out of what you have. But if you give me a million dollars, then you are giving according to what you have. God doesn't give out of, he gives according to. In other words, God gives of himself. He really gives of himself to us. And what does he give? Paul says he gives mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy here is is pity or compassion. Now, this isn't the kind of pity or compassion where you, you feel sorry for somebody. This is the kind of pity or compassion when there is a just and right punishment and penalty that's supposed to be handed down to someone and you hold back on that punishment. You you refrain from that punishment. This is the the kind of, of mercy and compassion that looks at a credit score that's at zero and says, I'm going to change that score. This is the kind of pity and mercy and compassion that looks at a dead, lost, hopeless, helpless, miserable soul and says, no more misery, I'm bringing mercy. That's what the mercy of God does. But how does that happen? How, how can our spiritual credit score change? How, how can the deepest misery that exists in the universe be erased 
from our lives? Well, God does it through his mercy, by the way he gives his mercy, and the way he gives his mercy is through his son. This is what Paul wrote the church at Philippi. I count all things. Just think of everything that you own. Whatever you have in the bank, whatever's in your garage or your shed, whatever's in your wallet right now. Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In other words, when you put everything together and you put it in one pile, everything that is valuable to us, and then you put Jesus on the other side, there's, there's no comparison. There's absolutely no, Jesus is better. Jesus is pure. Jesus is higher. There's, there's nothing greater. There's no love that's higher than the love of Jesus. So Paul says, I count these things to be lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And then he says this in verse 9 of Philippians 3. And so that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Listen, this is what God does. God took the just and right penalty of my sin and your sin, and he pulled it out of our spiritual accounts. He, he withdrew it from our spiritual accounts, so to speak. And then he deposited all of it, all of the sin of the world of the universe. He deposited all of it temporarily but completely on Jesus. And Jesus dealt with it once for all. And because of what Jesus did, because of Jesus satisfying the penalty of that sin, God now takes the righteousness of Jesus and deposits it into our account through faith in Christ. In other words, we get the perfection of Jesus because of Jesus. We get the righteousness of Jesus because of Jesus. We cannot take anything away from the righteousness of Christ. It's perfect. And we cannot add anything to the righteousness of Christ. It is perfect. See, we are the grand benefactors of the righteousness of Christ. When we were miserable, when we were helpless in our sin, that's when Christ died for us. See, we might say, my child's in need, my grandchild's in need, my spouse is in need. We might say, hey, I'm, I'm standing next to this guy in line and he looks like he has some need. Or, or we are standing next to this lady in line and, and she can't find her wallet. And we might step in and help. There, there'd be some nature, some part of us that we would want to be helpful. When we were the kind of people that said, God, hate you and hate your ways, don't want to have anything to do with you, that's when Jesus died. We were helpless, we were hopeless, we were dead in our sin. And God said, you know what, I'm going to change this story. We were far, far, far away. And mercy came running to us. There's a story in the Bible that we mentioned earlier about a young man who went to his dad one day and said, you know what, I, I want my inheritance now. Give me what... I deserve right now. And so the father gathered everything together, put the inheritance together, gave it to his son, and the son took off. He went out and he started spending the money in, in a way that he was trying to satisfy his earthly desires. He was, he was trying to gain the affection and the attention of other people in the world. 
And then he woke up one morning and he, he was broke. <laughs> he, he'd been living the life that most of us would dream of. And then he woke up one morning and it was all gone. And not only did he feel guilty, he was miserable. The Bible says he was, he was in a, a pig pen, put some mud. And he's like, what am I doing here? He was miserable and he was desperate and he had nowhere to go. Ever felt like that? Have you ever felt miserable? Have you ever felt desperate? Did you ever feel like you, you didn't have a friend in the world? You had nobody to turn to? Nobody was going to help you? You ever felt like that? Well, he was miserable, and he knew he only had one place he could go. He had to go back to his dad. But, but that was crazy. He had been awful to his father. He basically said, you know what? I wish you were dead. Because if you were in the grave, then I could have my money. He had been evil to his father. There was no way his father was going to show him mercy. There was no way his father was going to be nice to him. But he had nowhere else to go. So what happened? This is how Jesus tells it. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. From the moment his wayward son left, the father was looking and longing for his return. And when he saw him, when he was way off on the horizon, the father ran off the porch and he ran to where his son was. And he embraced him. He was happy to see him. The son deserved something different. He didn't deserve the hug. He didn't deserve the love. He didn't deserve the mercy and the compassion. But the father had mercy. He had compassion. He held back what was deserving. And he gave love. And he gave grace. He applied grace to his son's life. Listen, if you're a Christian and you have forgotten what that means, I hope we can stop forgetting today. I hope that, that we can really begin to remember in the deepest part of who we are. Wait a minute, I was dead, I was lost, I was helpless, and mercy came to me. If you're not a Christian, then I want you to know that there is coming a day where you will be beyond the reach of God's mercy. But that day is not today. Today, the mercy of God is running to you, saying, come, come. Come and find joy. Come and find hope. Hope that lasts forever. Let's pray.